Sports Talk with absolutely no sports talk. Welcome to the latest edition of the Just Not Sports Podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, with the English Premier League coming back into action, we will talk to longtime NBA coach, Uh, mentor, author, analyst, David Thorpe, about being an investor in Swansea City, about mentoring young EPL versus NBA talent, and about everything from Skrillex to Gwen Stefani. I'm not making that up. You're going to love this conversation. And Gareth and I will do our best to break down all the other things happening around sports that have nothing to do with sports and give you some distractions. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me, no Adam this week, no Joe this week. I will say Joe is coming back to the pod sooner than you may realize, a.k.a. next week. But on the line, in a hotel room, in a TBD state, it is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Man, Brad is fired up for tonight's show. Um, I'm in Charlotte. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, a city that I believe Drew McGarry, friend of the pod, uh, called this week in his Your Team Sucks breakdown of the Panthers, a Bank of America that became a city. And he is right about that. Sorry, Charlotte. Better uh, Chambers of Commerce, Convention and Visitors Bureau. Um, I am here to interview Vern Lundquist for a documentary uh, airing on CBS Sports Network at the end of the month on the Army-Navy uh, streak ending last winter. And Brad, to your point about my family, uh, my wife was very happy to see me leave because she's behind on Game of Thrones and I don't watch it. So she was able to catch up alone tonight and I called to say goodnight to her and she was like, okay, I'm watching Thrones. You can get off the phone now. So that's where we're at. All right, uh, Gareth, uh, spoiler alert on Game of Thrones. The dragons, they're not real. It's all a dream. It was all a dream. <laughs> we used to read Dragon Magazine, Dragon, the Daenerys flying on the scene. All right, well, you know what? Yeah. That was an awesome transition, accidentally, to my first wide open segment. First of all, no Joe Reed. He's almost married. Happening very soon. No Adam Millard. He is working, tied up. He loves you all. All he's the tied up? Opponents. Yeah, he's tied up and working. It's how we work in PR. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an endurance type of thing. It's like a American Gladiator type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are here, Gareth and I, to t- drive you through the uh, latest happenings in the sports world. And I want to start with wide open. We, we always throw the show wide open. Uh, anything that's uh, around the sports world, but not in the sports world, is fair game. And I want to talk Game of Thrones. So, Gareth, Noah Snidegard 
Am I pronouncing that right? You're in New York. Am I pronouncing that right? <laughs> For a sports show, you're all over the MLBB, bro. Syndergaard, man. Syndergaard? Are you serious? Yeah, yeah no, no Syndergaard. Dude, dude, I, I'm a Cubs fan. I only care about teams that win the World Series. Oh, my God. Even once every hundred years, you get so cocky. All right, yeah. go on. Noah, okay, hit it for me. Noah Sin- Syndergaard. Syndergaard was in a recent episode of Game of Thrones. He was just throwing a spear. I was a little disappointed. I wanted to see dialogue, Gareth. Uh, okay, look. Uh, you don't see dialogue. I wanted to hear dialogue. I wanted to see Noah stretch himself as a uh, performer. But, hey, look. He's working with what he's got. He, right, he threw a right. spear <laughs> toward a dragon. Good for him. I liked it. And it got me thinking. It got a ton of media... Because everything with Game of Thrones gets a ton of media in sports. And Gareth, I just wanted to, I wanted to put this out there for discussion. Has there ever been a piece of pop culture that has excited the sports media universe as much as Game of Thrones? So let me just throw out some stats for consideration. The Ringer, Bill Simmons, uh, much ballyhooed, Venture into <laughs> some ballyhoo. Yeah, much v- ballyhooed venture into uh, Silicon Valley and uh, new media has its entire uh, HBO relationship, as far as I can see, now hinged to their Game of Thrones after show. You've got, you know, Clay Travis. Which was canceled from HBO well, and now just exists on their website. No, it exists on Twitter, and I think it's actually doing better on Twitter than it was on HBO On Demand. Like I agree you, with that. You end, yeah, right. You end up with the show. Uh, I give, I give Simmons credit. Like no one pivots in sports like Bill Simmons. Like I give him credit, and I think they're better off for it. But you've Chris also Chris Paul like, has a good pivot, dude. Come on. Mm, has it ever been to the third round of the playoffs, Gareth? That pivot? Touche, touche. <laughs> we'll find out with Houston and James Harden, <laughs> and it won't. Um, I, I would also throw out there that like. Look, you've got outkick the coverage. Clay Travis goes periscope after every episode of Game of Thrones. You've got Big Lead doing recaps every Monday. You've got Desmond regularly sharing Game of Thrones recaps recaps from IO like IO9, their sister site, or maybe that's not. I don't know. Desmond's barely a site at this point. It's an aggregator. So let's leave them out. I, I mean, they, look, Desmond has writers that I really respect. I, Drew, Ma- look, Drew I, McGarry, a friend of Pod, I have to defend. I think Marchman is fine. I think Lindsay Adler is really good. I'm going to defend Nico is great. Look, yeah. I love Deadspin, but like, I'm not throwing them in because they're aggregating from IO9 or Jezebel or anything like that. That's the it, that's where it gets a little hazy. It's like a retweet. Has there ever been a pop cultural uh, entity that has made the sports world cover it like Game of Thrones. Go. Brad, I am glad you asked because the answer is yes. Because we have talked more about the damn Bachelor on this very show than just about anything else. And the amount of sports writers that break down the Bachelor or the Bachelorette after every episode will never seem it's it's will always be stunning to me and i honestly think that the bachelor has a bigger presence in the sports world that franchise i should say 
than Game of Thrones. Look, it's a great suggestion. I think it's right there. Uh, I think Game of Thrones is probably a little bit higher because we we haven't even gotten into all the memes online. All the you, you see a lot That's more fair. dragon memes on Worldwide Wob or Shea Serrano than you do with Game of Thrones than you do with Bachelor. But it's it's right there. I would say also the wire. So uh, one of our Twitter followers at Mama Cass, uh, they suggested uh, Sopranos, which I thought was probably very apt. Like in a time before all the blog explosion, there was a, probably a lot of Sopranos references on ESPN and Fox <laughs> and all the other stuff that was doing broadcast media back in the day. I was going to say the wire that there was like a five year stretch where anyone who had seen the wire was like throwing in like a freaking, you know, proposition joke yeah, Omar, or something like yeah, that. Omar reference just to be cool. And that's long gone now. But I mean, I mean, that got to the point where David Simon had to be like, stop it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right, right, that's right, like legit. Right. But yeah, it's a good question. I would say this. If you are a fan of the show, uh, our show, meaning not any of those other superior shows. Not Game of Thrones because they <laughs> yeah. have enough fans. Right, right, right. Uh, <laughs> and you have a suggestion. Let us know on Twitter. <laughs> I, I have another I'd like to throw out, but this is strictly reserved for white sports writers over the age of 50. And that'd be Bruce Springsteen. Cause when he goes on tour, especially on the East coast, God, it's insufferable. All of those dudes just tweeting out from the show or set lists, or he busted out Rosalita or what have you. And look, Bruce Springsteen is in that category where it's like, I like that Bruce Springsteen exists, but I am not a fan of him and his music per se. But I, I come to hate him when that kind of stuff goes down. Look, I just, I have to push back on one key point. I don't think there are a lot of white guys over 50 writing about sports anymore. Well, <laughs> since the pivot to video, you might be right. Yeah, no, so. it's all white guys over 50. And then there's everyone on the internet who matters. Okay. That's my thing. Gareth, wide open. What do you want to talk about? Uh, so I'm in Charlotte right now for the PGA championship it was announced today that it's moving to May. Does that matter to you, Brad? Uh, should I do the in sync thing? It's going to be May. I don't know that <laughs> dude. You don't know in sync. You and I had Not really. Gareth, you and I had very, very different college experiences. You on the, far, far East Coast. Like, you might as well have gone to school where the Titanic sank. Like, you were that far East Coast. <laughs> Belfast? And, and I was as far Midwest as you can get. So I heard a lot of fucking in sync during my college experience. So I know it's gonna be May is a popular meme among Midwesterners. Got it. All right. Because so, I actually have thoughts. I'm not a big golf guy, but I have thoughts on this. Uh, if you want my real thoughts, it's this. I think the PGA Championship and the PGA Tour wants to be relevant. And by August, they're an afterthought. And they want to make the British Open the afterthought. Boom. Winning. Done. That's good. That's interesting. I was going to say that I understand why they're moving it. Because at this point, like... 
I'm sitting in this hotel room and hard knocks is premiering and it's the first weekend of preseason football and it's going to just consume the sports media landscape, but I will miss having, and I don't love golf. Like I don't consider myself a fan of it, but I'll follow majors. And I think that having that major to break up the month of August during the baseball only preseason football slog is always nice. So. All right. I got one more wide open. It's going to be short. I want to give a huge shout out to Colleen Watson on Twitter at Colleen MF Watson, which I hope stands for motherfucking Watson. Watson. Amazing. She tweeted to us an AV club who shout out AV club. We love them story by Katie Reif. It's a part of a series called run the series, which examines film franchises and how they evolved through the years. And she sent us this story, the Air Bud movies, Air Bud, hold on, the Air Bud movies are the laziest of kid flicks, but at least the dog is cute. And Gareth, I read this enormous article. It's like a New Yorker fiction piece worth of article about the Air Bud movies, and I highly recommend it. I thought it was fascinating. Let me give you a couple of key stats. Number one, there were a shit ton of spinoffs, which have now grown to include the Air Buddies series, plural, which includes... Wasn't there also Golden Receiver? Oh, no, wait, wait. That's part of the core five. Like, I'm way beyond you, bro. (laughs) 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 There's the Santa Paws series, the Pup Star series, and the MVP most valuable primate series and a number of other dog related movies all under the Airbud franchise, which I find hilarious. Gareth, listen to this. Buddy the dog, now deceased, RIP. RIP. He was in an episode of Full House. Amazing. Hmm. Snow Buddies, the movies, mo- movie, movies, question mark? I have no idea. Uh, five puppies allegedly died on that set. <laughs> so, Oof. you know, yeah, woof indeed. And then <laughs> the article goes on after what I can only describe as a Bill Simmons-esque 40,000 word like opus. Uh, it goes on to power rank the original five movies. And here's the order. Number five, Air Bud spikes back. Gareth, what what sport was that? Oh, it's volleyball. That's a volleyball movie. No, it was beach volleyball. Um, oh, come on. <laughs> Judges, please. Uh, Don't you answer it in a form of a question, too? What the fuck? <laughs> Number four, Airbud World Pup. Clearly a soccer franchise. Number three, seventh inning fetch. Number two, Golden Receiver. Ultimate Frisbee. That was their ultimate Frisbee yes, one, right? Ultimate yeah. Frisbee. And number two, uh, number one, Airbud. By the way, Gareth, real quick, real quick. Um, you were on an ultimate frisbee team in your college, weren't you? Uh, yeah, I played. Um, <laughs> I mean, we've gone into some of my hippie fet- uh, hippie <laughs> side, but yeah. Look, I. He- <laughs> I'm gonna die in the air. I'm gonna die in the air. You were on an ultimate frisbee team. Did you get a scholarship oh, I- for that out east? Out east, whoa, air quotes whoa, whoa, east. Did you get a scholarship whoa, whoa, for that? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, like 
here's all I'm going to say about the ultimate Frisbee team. I played some naked Frisbee. I drank a lot of beer, smoked a lot of weed. And to this day though, I can throw a Frisbee. Like it is a skill I have. If I see strangers in a park throwing a Frisbee, I'll go join. I got a backhand, a forehand, a hammer. I can, I can hammer it to you with accuracy. So that is a valuable skill that I got from college. And I am proud to say that I played some ultimate Frisbee. All right. I'm just going to say this before we go to our interview. Um, after the nuclear war that is clearly coming this week, uh, yes, we will need people that can turn on the power grid again. We will need people that can build shelters. But if you need someone to ultimate frisbee your shit up, I want you to consider Gareth Hughes. <laughs> Put me on your long list. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That is wide open. Uh, right now, we're going to go to the coach, the coach, uh, David Thorpe. You know him from ESPN. You know him from True Hoop. You know him from the Zach Lowe podcast, the Howard Beck podcast. He is an authority in the NBA. Uh, an investor in the Premier League, uh, a guy oh. who coaches skills in Israel every year, just got back from there. Super fascinating. Stick around. And then after that, Gareth and I are back to distract you. Coming back. wind it back to soccer but let me start with uh i'll start with your book basketball is jazz uh currently available on amazon i just want to let me just ask you right here i mean there's a lot of stories and 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 lessons to get into that we'll talk about in a second but where did you get the the parallel of basketball being like jazz what do you mean by that basically it's jazz it's I, i like music i mostly listen to classical and opera when i when i'm not listening to you know the old stuff i've been listening to my whole life um, and that's more a little bit rhythmic and, and jazz is much more free flowing and fluid. And you, you might never, you might not get the same take twice in the same song. Uh, there's a random variability, uh, that still kind of has to connect and make some sense, you know, uh, synchronicity to it. They use a different word in jazz, but basketball, when it's played the right way, in my opinion, is the same. Uh, it is, uh, basketball isn't what I was taught growing up, which is, you know, you pass it here and you run here every time. Or if he catches it there, you go down screen. That I, I told my son, if he ever played high school for a coach that did that, and I couldn't convince the coach of otherwise, I, I would fall asleep at games. Basketball is supposed to be a much more fluid, rhythmic performance. And that's, I mean, you can, you can run ball screen every time if you want to, but, but your read's going to be different. What the defense will do should be different. They shouldn't be doing the same thing every time because that's too predictable. And, and so to me, it just made a lot of sense that, that we had that. Plus, as I wrote in my book, it, it was a quote that uh, a friend of mine had said to me, uh, football is military precision, baseball is math, basketball is jazz. And hmm. I just thought it made some sense. Having played jazz growing up a little bit, I played trumpet. I also know about the interplay between all the people on the court. And yeah. it's, it's not just your own your own sort of um, uh, you know interpretation of the music or improvisation, it is a real chemistry and dynamic there that, that has to come together or else everything falls apart and looks like the Knicks. 
<laughs> That's very well put. Even before you got to the next part, I thought that was very well put, Brad. Uh, I, w- I was just talking to uh, one of my players, plays for his national team in Israel. He's, he's the starting point guard. And, uh, and I, I trained their two, I, many years I've trained their two best players. He and Omer Caspi's in the NBA. And they just had a, a big win in an exhibition. There, you know, the Eurobasket is coming up here at the end of the month, which is a, kind of a European championships, but also an opportunity to qualify for the Olympics, which Israel has never done before. And that's one reason why I went there. They, they, my two players are the two most famous guys. And instead of them coming here in June, they need to be there to shoot commercials and help promote because Israel is actually hosting a pool for the first time ever. Uh, I think uh, Russia's coming, you know, a bunch of good teams, whatever. So uh, I went there instead, and Israel in an exhibition just beat some really good teams, one game without Omri, the other without both of their stars, and they beat them pretty good. They beat, in fact, they beat Russia, who had three or four NBA guys or high-level players, but it's because of everything you just said. The, the Israeli guys have been around a long time together. They know each other well. They play off each other so well. Uh, every sport has that kind of connective tissue aspect of it. Uh, wide receivers and quarterbacks certainly have to be on the same page and almost almost have instinctive reads that are that are done simultaneously. But what you wrote, what you said is exactly right because everyone is so close together. You, it's not just about seeing it. You actually can feel it in many right. cases. You're, you're so, it's just a small court. And, and so, yeah, when you, that interplay that you have, and I know uh, as someone who does, you know, kind of read about music some, and, and also I've, I just love studying the creative process. I just posted some on Facebook the other day about Calvin Harris and the way he made his, his last song, A Slide. Um, a little creative stuff there. And uh, Henry Abbott from True Hoop, who's one of my closest friends, had sent me uh, something that uh, Skrillex put together with Justin Bieber on one of their songs. And, I, and so I'm always looking at that. I've, I've been for years, I've watched Inside the Actors Studio long before it was famous and they got any A-list actors. I was watching it because I just love that creative process. And, and it's just, you know, improv- improvisation, but as well as just acting in general, it's, it's, they all, all these famous actors and directors and producers say the same thing. You have to read and listen to the other person and they'll dictate to you. And I think that's so much a part of our game. You have a section uh, in, the, in the book called The World Is Not Flat. Have you informed Kyrie Irving and is he disappointed? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> I have not. And I, I, I really I don't know if he is. I never knew if he was serious about that. Uh, we don't I think, we don't think he bit. is on this show. We, we, we think that he we think a lot of these guys in the NBA now are they're the first generation who is completely over all media like they just it, they've been inundated with with their own channels and 24 seven their whole lives. And I feel like a lot of them are just bored and throwing stuff against the wall and being like, sure, let's see how this plays today. Boy, that'd be, I mean, I know I met Kyrie when he was a, a rising rookie. In other words, the summer before I met him at the NBA finals in Miami. Uh, he was with his agent. We just said, hello. He didn't know who I am. I don't think he knew who I was, but, and I barely knew who he was. I don't really pay attention to college too much, but I knew he was going to be a top, you know, he had, he was going to be a top, you know, two or three pick in the draft at that point. Seemed like a very nice young man. Uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying, uh, but I'm going to take it a step further. And I've done a few podcasts recently where I've expressed this. As someone who does get a chance to watch the English uh, Premier League and, and pay attention to uh, sports globally, not just uh, uh, soccer or even just basketball, but, but I pay attention globally and I've had a chance to travel some. Our athletes in America are the last to figure out where their leverage is and mm-hmm. why they have leverage. 
And there's lots of reasons for that. We can get into race and, and how what that's played in slavery and all of that, because it all really does have an impact on mindset. But there's no question that I think you could probably trace the roots back farther, but I'll start with LeBron's decision uh, that he did on TV, which was a debacle. By the way, he hasn't screwed up since in terms of PR. Uh, and everyone's allowed to make mistakes. Uh, the, the, our athletes are finally realizing that they're the show. Right. Uh, I've got our record many times of saying the NBA is a coach's league, and what I always mean by that is that the best coaches tend to always find a way to, to, to be relevant and, uh, and develop players and so forth, and, and bad coaches tend not to. But, of course, the superstars are what drives everything. Uh, in Europe, if you have a great year, I don't care if you have three years left in your soccer contract, you can hold out and demand as long as the team that you're currently playing for is going to get paid. It's a very important point. They've got to get paid. That, that, that player, Neymar, I think, would he get sold for 200-some-odd million dollars yeah. uh, at the team, in, the team in Paris? So the team, his old team got paid, uh, so did Neymar. Well, that's what Kyrie's doing by, by saying, hey, you've got to trade me. Uh, and I still have a, a time left. He's not the first guy to do that. He's the first guy to do it in the in the way and manner that he did coming off a team that you know has been a three straight finals. We're going to start seeing this as as the norm now, where players uh, just realize that they they've got control, you know, for maybe five years of their entire career, and because they can't do it when the first draft until we finally get rid of the draft, and they can't do it when they're so old, no one cares. Like Carmelo doesn't really have any power left. But right. when you're in your prime and you're a great player, you can kind of dictate some things. And I think eventually they'll be doing it even more so than we see it now, just like they do in other sports around the world. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the English Premier League. And for our listeners' benefit, I mean, you're an investor with, with, with Swansea over there. Uh, the, the season kicking off, I think this week, right? Community Shield was just this last week. We play out Southampton, correct? <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the Premier League. I, I caught the bug uh, when I had my first daughter four years ago. The The only... On Saturday and Sunday mornings, I took the the awake shift from my wife uh, from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m. every every Saturday and Sunday, and and I I just started watching the league. I loved it. Uh, became a Spurs fan. Do not hold that against me. Um, <laughs> and uh, I did I did make it out to to White Hart Lane to to watch them play. I brought my wife, and she fell asleep in the stands. And uh, I had to prop her head up like weekend at Bernie's, so no one would would know. Um, that's a true story. Uh, so I'm just fascinated. How did you get involved with the league? And and uh, from your perspective, as someone who's has covered and been involved with bas- you know coached and covered basketball uh, across mm-hmm. the world, uh, what parallels do you find between the basketball world and uh, the EPL? So great question. Uh, you, you, there were two there. The, the way I got involved was real simple. Uh, the men that bought the team, the primary owners, are in, in one case a friend of mine, in another case one of my closest friends. And uh, he and I had talked about maybe doing some work together at some point where I, I would do some consulting on player development and so forth because he knew my success in basketball with it, with the players that I helped anyway. And I, I've kind of a thing where if I'm gonna if I'm gonna get involved in something, I'd I'd rather have a chance to have some ownership of it, and there was some opportunity there to to put some money in. So I, I was, I got together with some people in Florida, um, uh, t- team doctors, some of the pro teams here, my brothers who are very involved in in sports and medicine and so forth, and we put a little group together and put some money in, and uh, just cause it'd be it'd be fun. Like, to your second question, which is great, because I just was talking about this uh, with some Swansea people the other day. I was with the team in Raleigh 
uh, who they were doing their, their preseason training. We put the player club exhibitions and it, I went to practice every day. I was able to stay in the team hotel and I got a chance to talk to the coaches and the head coach every day. And, and at one, we went to Durham. Uh, they, they had visited North Carolina and Chapel Hill during the day. We went to Durham for a, a big barbecue dinner um, that evening. And I got to hang out with the players and the team and everything. And I was speaking to uh, some of the young players and I just was struck with how much they reminded me of the God, thousands of young people from America that I've had a chance to coach and talk to uh, that just were dying to be great basketball players, whether they were 18 year old teenagers that I coached at some of the top basketball camps around the country to every year I'm working with, you know, NBA rookies or young players or in many cases veterans. Uh, but the, it was a, I, I was talking to a 22 year old player who was one of the top under 21 players in England when England had an amazing under 21 team. And now he's 22 and he's, probably not we own his rights but he's probably not good enough to play for the premier league team so we're probably gonna have to loan him out um uh, but he's better than we have an under 23 team all our players that that play lower level in fact i think we won our league last year but he's better than that so he can play in a league above that where he's got to go play for some other team we don't have anything like that really in the nba or major league baseball uh, where you just loan players out to groups that you have no control over at all and just talking to him and hearing him, you could see for the first time in his, in his career, he was losing a little confidence that I've dominated the sport my whole life. I've always been one of the best players, which isn't always the case in any sport. There's plenty of late blooming guys. I mean, Anthony Davis was not the best 15 year old, but we also have plenty of guys in, in all sports that do dominate their whole life. And, and, and we have to do a good job by this young man. We have to uh, show him what he's doing well and not doing well and, and believe in him and love him up and, and so forth and so on, or he's never going to reach his potential. And that, I think, happens in, in sports in America so frequently where the, the bad-to-average franchises, Brad, they mostly just take the cream off the top. They coach up their best players, and everyone else is just a number. It's almost like a commodity. And the best, think of the Spurs. Obviously, the Spurs are the best example in the NBA. You could look at the Warriors, who I think are catching up. And you could look at Utah, who's done a really good job developing their players, too. You know, Danny Green was, was gettable for every team in the NBA. And as was Patty Mills, as was Boris Dion. I could go on and on. Right. Uh, they, they found a way to develop those guys to reach their potential. Not everyone can be LeBron James. In fact, almost no one ever can be LeBron James. But, but there's been a lot of Danny Greens out there. Sometimes they're going to always be that way, no matter how you coach them. Sometimes you have to help them be that way, uh, which is a big thing. I, um, I have a real theory. Uh, I didn't invent it, but are you familiar with the Pygmalion theory of psychology? No. I only know Pygmalion, the play that became My Fair Lady, same correct? Thing. Yeah. Okay, same thing. Right. There you go. So uh, are you a dad? I am a father of two. How old are your kids? So I have uh, two girls. One is four and one is eight months old. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you got yeah, a long way to go. So my kids are... <laughs> yes, I do. My twins, yeah. My twins just came home. They're 16. They just came home from their first day of uh, sophomore year of high school. Uh, but, but, but I'm going to talk about the Pygmalion thing, which I think is a big part of sports, but it's so much a part of parenting. Uh, Pygmalion, the reason why you know it as a play, and of course, is the My Fair Lady, the, the, the play in the movie was a sculptor who, who sculpted such a beautiful, this is Greek mythology, sculpted such a beautiful uh, uh, a, a depiction of a woman in his sculpture that he fell in love with it. 
And he loved it so much in this, in this you know, mythological tale that the sculpture became alive, right? It, it became real. And so we think of this, when you, if you, if you, the, everyone knows the My Fair Lady story, I would guess. Uh, well, maybe not everyone, but everyone in my generation does. We, we all had to watch it a lot. Uh, Rex Harrison was able to kind of turn that, that shop girl, in a sense, into what everyone thought was like a princess. Mm-hmm. Uh, with perfect diction and grace and elegance. And he, but he, and it's, it's, it's the secret that they don't really talk about in the movie. He was very much in love with her and believed, even though he didn't know how to show it, it was very evident that he did. And that's really what we have to do as parents and, and as mentors and coaches and managers is uh, we have an impact on the people we care about. Uh, whether they want it or not, they, they, if they know we love them, we can shape them. And how we shape them is something we have to be thoughtful of. So I think about that Pygmalion theory all the time as it relates to all aspects of our life where we are in a position to influence others. And so I think the best sports teams typically have a great culture built in where, you, you know, you've heard the phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, those those teams have it figured out, uh, even if sometimes by accident, because they just love each other and care about each other. And that's tends, that tends to be where young people can develop to their fullest potential, whatever that is. And, and the places where it's poisonous, uh, the Sacramento Kings is the most obvious example. I mean, you would never run a business the way they run their team. Uh, it's, you, that's why no one survived that place. And until they change, they, no one will. Yeah, I mean, it, putting this through the lens of your your work with Swansea, like the you know it, the EPL is we, we talk about the haves and the have-nots in the NBA, but it's a whole other level um, when you talk about European yeah. and, and and global football. And I, I'm curious from your perspective, like how how much are you focused on watching what as an investor what Swansea does with their player development, which starts very early. So I, I I've done almost nothing to this point other than try to be a, an interested observer as well as a, a note taker. And, uh, and reading up on things, uh, I just watched a documentary last night called Jack to a King, which is kind of the Swansea City story of how they went from you know, barely being in professional leagues to begin with to being the, professional league, being the top league, the Premier League, for quite a long time now uh, with very little budget. We have a very small budget. I mean, the team was sold for $107 million, but, but we, uh, that's nothing compared to right. uh, what's out there just in our league alone, much less some of the other leagues in Europe. Uh, but but I'll start with this real simple idea. Uh, do you, I don't know if you follow college football much, but there was a period of time for decades in the University of Florida where I went to school. I graduated in 87. So, but before I got there uh, and while I was there, uh, we played in back-to-back weeks uh, Auburn and Georgia, which are always two SEC powers. Now, remember... And by the way, when I say SEC powers, I'm talking about the best football in the world, right? College football in the South is typically the best for lots of reasons. Our guys play year-round and train year-round and whatever. Uh, high school, you know, we have high schools here in Florida and Georgia and Alabama where the head coach doesn't teach. He just coaches year-round. Weight lifts and the whole thing. So, but Florida had never beat, almost never beat those two teams back-to-back, almost in history. And then we hired a guy named Steve Spurrier, who had come from Duke, which was a small football school. Spurrier had played at Florida and won a Heisman Trophy. He was a great, he was a great player. No one knew if he could really coach in the SEC. People thought he couldn't. And right away, he just started talking about 
I don't understand why, why it is we can't beat Georgia and Auburn in back-to-back weeks. Uh, number one, we play Georgia every year in the Gator Bowl, which is in Jacksonville. It's an hour and a half away from Gainesville. It's in our home state. Even though they sell the tickets 50-50, we, it's our bus ride shorter, and it's our state and so forth. It's it just word games. Uh, but he, he just felt like we have the best high school every year to this day, California, Florida, Texas are the top three in, in number of top athletes produced for football. And Florida typically is number one. We have a huge state. And like I said, we play year round. And he just felt it was just, there's, we have to stop thinking that we can't beat those two teams back to back. Of course we can. And sure enough, almost every year he did and won a national championship. And to this day, we don't play George and Auburn back to back anymore. And I barely even follow college football anymore, but he, he really changed that mindset. No one, it, when you talk to people today that went to Florida in the last 15 years, they won three football, cha- two football, no, I think it's three football championships, uh, two, M- two basketball championships. They don't remember when we were there, we always waited for the other shoe to drop. We always waited for the flag to be thrown in football or the air ball and the free throw. Or We just always knew something bad was coming. And so I tell you that to tell you this. Uh, that's kind of the Swansea story, which I think is typical of most small-budget teams. It's the Cubs, the next Steve Bartman. It, you know, that mentality exists to a strong level. It's all over the place, but not everywhere. So when I talk to you about this, understand that when I was speaking about this exact same subject to four people, we were driving from Richmond to Raleigh with the Swansea team. We, they had a, they, I flew to Richmond, went to an exhibition game, then I drove with the team to Raleigh, but I was in a van with uh, four Englishmen and a Brazilian. Uh, the, the Englishmen, <laughs> all but one, were eight agents. They represented players and tour operators, and, and they played professional soccer. And the English guys were like, oh, that's us. That's, that's Swansea, and that's England in general. That's why we haven't won a World Cup game since uh, World Cup championship since 1960, even though we have a lot of talents. We have this great Premier League here. We just always know something bad's going to happen. And the Brazilian was laughing, and I, and I said, what, what, what is it? And he said, I never thought of this before, but that's just not at all the way it was for me growing up. We, we all were told, you know, we're, we're the next superstars. This guy did not play at that high a level. Huh. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't because he didn't think he ever could. And so when you ask me what it is I, I, I hope to do, I've started a consulting business beyond uh, uh, players now working with teams uh, this year. Now that I've left ESPN, I can, I can do this for basketball, but I want to do it for soccer too, because we actually have a better soccer globally has a much better infrastructure for their young players. As you said, uh, every team has an academy. They have clinics all over the world. They're scouring the world for talent because remember, there's no draft. You, you can find a 12 year old and sign them or 15 or whatever and start training them. And so uh, I think I want to, I think I want to be part of a group that helps change the culture where, we stop expecting something bad to happen. Instead, start expecting something good because we're putting in the work and we're talented. And we, and, and we know this is something I have in, uh, in my book. I have a chapter called Embrace the Suckiness. It, it, suckiness and failure, <laughs> and, and that, that's all part of it. it. It's all part of every sport you'll ever play, every marriage you'll ever be in, every certainly every father-son and father-daughter relationship, and the same with moms. It's just built into life. And so if you're going to, if you're going to feel like someone threw your curveball, Oh my God, you know, the, the world has it in for me, then you're not paying attention because it's hard for all of us. 
And, and if you keep looking at the obstacles, I promise you, you'll hit every one. But if you see the bigger picture and believe that that's just part of the deal, if you're on a roller coaster, you're going you're gonna to have twists and turns and ups and downs. You know what's coming. Well, that's what life is. You just got to get used to it. How scary is it as someone involved with one of these clubs to sweat out relegation, oh, man. which is just like relegation so is, is not just even, oh, I'm out of the, I'm out of the top tier. It's, it's millions and millions and millions of dollars that may prevent you from ever getting back in. So, so what's it like to, to watch that and, and, and have a stake in the game? Well, I'll start with this. When in talking to the people actually whose you know, entire lives depend on it, yeah. that, which is what I did when I was in Raleigh with the team, it, that was really incredible how incredibly scared they were. For us as investors, and I, 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 don't, you know, I don't have most of my fortune in that, so we, we survived no matter what. I was still going to pay the bills, I think. But it was, it was definitely nerve-wracking. There's no question about it. Uh, it, it didn't matter that from we we hired a new coach halfway through the season a third our third coach and uh it from that point on we finished eighth in the premier league so clearly we were making great progress right but had we not won in the last week we're out and uh or maybe the week before i think we had clinched it the week before kind of um and then the day before our last game someone else lost and i think that iced it up for us but uh it wouldn't have mattered that we did so well because all the matters of the final standings and it was brutal. Yeah, it was really scary. And and uh, but I was talking to the head coach about. I could see as he got there longer and longer. Um, and it, we re- we were really bad actually when we first got there. We had some injuries and just couldn't score. But you could just tell our our group started connecting better and believing in themselves. And in fact, I talked to the players. There wasn't a single guy that said to me this summer like like that they didn't realize this guy can really coach. And that that goes back to what I was saying before. The, the reason why the Pygmalion theory works so well as a dad and as a coach or a manager is you're in a position of authority and power and, and they look up to you and respect you. And so if, if they believe in you, you know, that person you look up to and respect to believes in you the way they love you, whatever, it's easier to believe in yourself. And I think the Swansea players started realizing, okay, we're, we're going to be fine. And, and we've had a couple of uh, stories like that where we came on late. But no, it just uh, from a sheer standpoint, it, the American people listening to this will not understand, Brad, what we're talking about because we just don't have that. They know what the with the pressure of like of, of winning a game or you know losing the championship game and so forth. But to know that that you're going to be kicked out of the league, and <laughs> and then what happens is when you get kicked out of a league, drop to a, a level below. It's, it's almost like you're running on a treadmill. You, you finish top three in that league, which certainly we would expect to had we got relegated. Uh, you still expect it. But then you're back up, but you're a bottom three. You go back down, and it's never, it seems like it's just hard to stay up. And uh, history says once you stay up for a good number of years, you've made enough money where you can buy enough depth and a couple of stars or whatever where you can always stay up. But uh, you slip down, and, and really you press, press the reset button. So... Most people still think we're going to be relegated again this year. I just looked at ESPN's forecast, and there's a whole bunch of experts, so-called experts, who, who think we're going to be a bottom three. It's all guessing. You know, that, first of all, we still have three, two and a half weeks to go in what's called the transfer window, and we have another one later in the year, right, where you can bring guys in. Uh, and so we have a player holding out right now that we're, going to, we're hoping to sell, and, and uh, if we do sell them, we'll use that money to bring in some other good players and, and maybe make ourselves stronger. But – we also could get weaker and, and then get, be relegated. So it's, there's still a lot to be done, but uh, it is, it is it's, it's, it's an added bit of excitement that 
we don't have in American sports. That gives you two weeks, my friend, to raise the 200 million euros to go swipe Neymar right now. Yeah. Just take that him away from be, PSG yeah. already. That, so, but, but really, <laughs> it, it's funny, but really that's why it's so important for these lower market teams, small market teams, to, to find that young talent that oh, you yeah. uh, develop. Because if you end up getting one of those guys, if, you can, if, he, can be all, if, he, if he can make $30 million and all you can pay him is twelve. You got to sell him, but if you do that, you're you're not just selling him so he can make money. You're getting paid too, and now that cash it's not going in the investors' pockets. You're buying more talent. You're right. reinvesting that money, and and it's a game changer. So that's why that's why all these teams are scouring the world for young talent. Do you have a favorite song or or, or chant that we can coax out of you? <laughs> it's funny you ask that. I don't have one. It's really funny, yes, because I have an idea. <laughs> you know, do you know the song? Uh, it's uh, Gwen Stefani sang it with her band. Um, oh, no doubt. It just went play. Yeah, no doubt has a song called Sunday Morning. I, I don't, I don't absolutely, know the song. I love the song. It's got an amazing start. It's got a great beat, and and the, the chorus is she sings Sunday Morning. I so much, it's so upbeat. You have to listen to it. And instead of Sunday morning, I want her to sing Swansea City. Oh. I feel like the fans would go nuts. It's such a great song. I wish we could do this, convince Gwen to have her cut her own track for a Sunday morning, but uh, I don't think she will. <laughs> Wait, what's yours? What's your favorite? Well, I, don't, I was going to say the, uh, um, as a Spurs fan, you know, we just kind of have their, our own version of when the, when the Saints go marching in, but I, every team has that. I mean, I, what, 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 what I found fascinating was when I went to White Hart Lane, I was expecting it to be, uh, like the student section at at um, you know at Duke, like I, I was expecting nonstop screaming, hollering, yelling, and what I found was it was far more like a a tennis match or a Broadway play. Everyone in my in, my, in the whole stadium sat very intensely and watched. And it, my wife is the one who flagged it to me. She said, "I feel like I'm at a tennis match because everyone's head is just moving in unison back and forth with the ball." And yes, they would, there were certain pockets that would sing songs and do the chants, but they were very, very focused. And I'm just curious from you, like, what do you feel about the, just the, uh, the culture of the way that the, the fans over there, uh, not just like cheer for their team, but just the way they watch the games, just, just the, whole, the whole vibe around the sport? Because it's, it's very unique, and I think it's far different and more complex than a lot of Americans expect. So yeah, great, really great point. Uh, that's why she fell asleep. By the way, that puts me to sleep. Just thinking <laughs> it, about it. Well, uh, the, the the four beers that we drank on the way in <laughs> did not help in her defense. Is, yeah, I haven't. Uh, I, I've not had an alcoholic beverage at a sporting event since my freshman year of college, where, oh, wow. where I run to my dorm at halftime and grab a beer. I just, <laughs> I, if, if I'm at a sporting event, I'm 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 not doing anything but paying attention. But uh, it, it's funny watching the games this year for the first time. 
I thought the same thing. Like, where, where's, where are the hooligans? Where is the chanting all game long? And mostly, I'm just watching our Swansea guys. I'm like, why are we so quiet? And so you're, <laughs> you're completely right. People are paying attention. Uh, but I talk about culture. What's really neat about it, and I, and I don't know if you follow the NFL. I did for many, many years in the NFL. And I, my, my family had seen tickets to Tampa Buccaneer games since I was 11, which was the first year they were founded. So literally, their inaugural season, we, my parents were going to the games. And pretty soon, my mom got smart and realized, why am I sitting in 100-degree weather watching a terrible team play? <laughs> oh, and so 16. My, my dad started bringing me. And then when I graduated college and came home, that was kind of our Sunday thing, you know, eight games a year. He and I would go to the games together, and we continued to do that. It used to be on his dime, and then when I started making a couple of dollars, it was on my dime. And then I think my kids were four or five. So it was a good 15 years, 20 years we were doing this. I just realized, what am I doing? Sitting around in this, I don't care about these players. I don't care about football. I want to go hang out with my twins. And so I convinced him finally to stop. And I don't follow it all anymore, but he does. But it does remind me of this. Uh, I feel like you were saying this before, where basketball is such an interaction personally because we're so close to the athletes, especially where we can sit at the game. Forget about the camera. The camera loves basketball players because you can zoom up and there's nothing hiding you but a tank top and shorts. Uh, Football is so covered. And so what happens is when you're at a game and it turns out our our stadiums in Tampa, the old one and the new one, we're kind of right on top of the action. Those are the best stadiums to be in. And most stadiums are built that way. Uh, But you still can't have that personal connection to the athlete for obvious reasons of what they're wearing. And so it it becomes so much about the front of the jersey. You know, this is your team. But the reality is, it's really not, right? In, in, in American football, uh, uh, professional football, and professional sports, these players come and go. Uh, there are communities like, for example, Sacramento, where it's the only game in town. Memphis, where it's the only game in town for basketball. There, there is, there, I think there's a deeper connection to the fabric of the, of, the, of the community. That's how it is over there, I think, in every way, shape, and form. You really, you really don't know how long that player is going to be there. If, you, if in the NBA or the NFL, you sign a three-year deal, first of all, in the NFL, it's very hard to get traded. You're more likely to get cut than traded. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know that guy's going to be with you for a while. In, in Europe, man, I mean, you're, you're, you're hoping you're there. he's there for a year. Sometimes they're there for 15. But it's just so, if they play great and you fall in love with them, too bad, because now they could be gone. Uh, with the way it works over there, the players have so much control. So it's really more about this is just who we are. It's, it's, it's in our DNA. And that's what I love about it. And a, a team like Swansea, uh, I mean, I, I literally at one point, the community, we bought the team from local citizens. They owned it. Right. They were just for sake of the thing being mismanaged by everybody else. And they just put, put a trust together and bought the team and made themselves a bunch of money doing it. They didn't do it for that reason. That's why we, we bought the team for, for, for many reasons. One, it's an investment, but they did it to save their team. This is their boys. And it didn't really matter what the names of those boys were. If you can find a guy that's local, even better. And there's some great stories about a whale, you know, Welsh kid you know, scoring a hat trick and keeping them up from the – they were about to be relegated out of professional football uh, before this guy uh, scored three goals in the last game of the season. But really, it's just, you know, it, it's what you do on that day. You know, New Orleans – I went, to my jazz, I went to the first Jazz Fest, my first Jazz Fest this year. My brother turned 50, and he had been going every year, and so we went. And I'll never miss it again. But it, jazz is so much in the culture of, of native New Orleans uh, citizens. Uh, well, that's what football is, I think, in these communities. I've never been to an Arsenal game. A buddy of mine helps run the team. 
Uh, but but they, they bleed for their team and their community, and I don't know that we have as much of that in the state. Uh, by the way, I'm a Tottenham fan because of Arsenal, and here it is, real quick. I was going to London. I watched the I watched the EPL for an entire season just when my baby was born. Loved the sport, uh-huh. you know. Listened to like Men in Blazers and and got a feel for the culture of the they're, sport. They're the best. Oh my gosh, they're, they're the so best. great. They're so great. Um, so mm. I. <laughs> I said, you know, my ne- the next year, my wife and I were going to go to London, and I said, I'm going to drag you to a game. And I said, you know what? I'll just, I'll be a fan of whoever I get to go see. And we on the calendar that week, Arsenal was at home, and Tottenham was at home, and West Ham was at home. And I said, well, I should probably go to Arsenal. Like, I read Fever Pitch. You know, that was my first interaction with EPL years before the Hornby novel. And and then I, I, I had to join this fan club for money. So did my wife to even have the chance to stay up at three in the morning and try to buy tickets online through their official vendor. They were sold out. Nothing was available. At at four in the morning, I said, forget this. I went to StubHub. Two Tottenham tickets, 10 rows up from the field were on there. I bought them and I was like, I'm a Spurs fan officially, not just because I'm seeing them, but because my first interaction with big time British soccer was Arsenal screwing me over. So of course I'm going to be a Tottenham fan. (laughs) And I'm just curious, like, who are Swansea's natural arch rivals? You know, I'm not sure. Actually, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know that we've ever earned, as, as a lot of the <laughs> NBA guys are saying, you got to win some games to be a rival. Is it relegation? Um, is that your natural rival? Is the threat of relegation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. I, I think so. But I, I, love, I love how like, your story of why you started rooting for uh, Tottenham. Uh, my favorite one about that is Mark Stein, who's a really close friend of mine, a long time oh, yeah. NBA rival. He, he's a gigantic, right, EPL fan. Man City's his team. And I asked him once, why, why do you root for Manchester City? I mean, his, he has no connection to that part of the world, but he told me a great story. When he was, like, 10, for the very first time, his parents were sending to Tel Aviv to go spend the summer with his grandparents. And he loved sports when he was 10. And his grandmother went to the local news, uh, like, bookstore, magazine store, and said, my sports-crazy son is coming here from America you know, what, do you have any NBA books and football books or baseball, whatever? And of course, in Israel, like most places in Europe, all they had were soccer books, soccer magazines or football magazines, uh, European football. And it was all EPL stuff. This is going back, you know, he was probably, he's probably in his 40s, so probably 70s, early 80s. And, and so she just filled their home with EPL magazines. And that's what he spent his summer doing. Uh, when he wasn't on the streets of Tel Aviv, he was reading these EPL magazines, and for whatever reason, he never told me why, Man City was the one team he fell in love with, because who knows when you're 10 what you're doing. <laughs> right. uh, I, love, I love the organic aspect of that, uh, and I told you before, I, I like following the creative uh, aspect of, of all that we see in life, and, and it's just some, I listen to the Hollywood Reporter podcast uh, when they do their awards chatter podcast, so every time there's like, the Emmys or the Oscars nominees are listed. Uh, the guy who runs their podcast, the high reporter, will interview most of the nominees. And so I've heard from Ron Howard to Ryan Reynolds. I just listened to this was from he did this after Deadpool was was rightfully nominated for that brilliant thing. Uh, I've listened to Tom Hanks, so many people, and it's just amazing what happens when you're a child. Uh, as, as a dad now to 16 year olds, my wife and I have been real mindful of what we're creating. Because that there's an organic aspect to things that you love as a kid that'll stay with you forever if you if you kind of develop it right and and certainly it's why 
uh, uh, these these players around the world, if you can impact them when they're 9, 10, 11, 12, you know, why do you think the NBA is going to Tel Aviv for the first time in South Africa every year and, the, and Asia, they're, they're, they're bringing their brand over there. Just like uh, you just probably saw uh, the NBA is playing some games in Mexico City and in London again. And uh, they're doing it because two reasons. It'd be great to inspire the next young Dirk Nowitzki who might be or, or whatever international player you want to choose right. who may have always played soccer until he decides to go to his game, a game with his dad or his uncle or whatever and says, oh, I want to try that sport and becomes amazing. Or more likely, obviously, he just becomes a fan and his friends become fans and his kids become fans, never ending. So that's, that's how you build your brand. And so much as you're not trying to impress this 35-year-old or 50-year-old man who's just going with his, corporate, his company at tickets to one of these games. You're trying to get to the kids who, who somehow inhale that into their DNA and, and become lifelong fans. Uh, this is the part of the interview where I have to say, can you confirm or deny Brendan Rodgers returning to Swansea this season, mid-season go? <laughs> no, I did not. No, I know. I, I just, it, practice. That, that, that's practice for you for when the British tabloids get their claws in you, my friend, and start pestering it's you. It's incredible. It's incredible how it really, it, 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 it comes, it's self-fulfilling in the opposite way. The, the way the press is over there, why I love the Men and Blazers show, among many reasons why so much, you're almost just, you're, you're, you've, I'm sure you've seen um, the movie with Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins. Uh, oh, uh, Bull Durham, Durham. Right? oh, yeah, of course. Right. So, so literally, because I deal with this with, uh, with my players overseas in places like Israel for basketball where the press is the same, all you're doing by being that sensational is guaranteeing you get nothing but cliches back. You seem optimistic. Can you guys get to top 10? I mean, where do you feel like the ceiling is on this team? So, you know, I, I don't really know yet until we find out what our team's going to look like and other teams are doing the same thing. I'll tell you this. I, I just was emailing uh, the, the, the guys who really run the team uh, this week about it. Uh, I've been around lots and lots and lots of amazing coaches. I have a chapter in my book where I was able to watch John Calipari run his University of Massachusetts team with Marcus Canby oh, to yeah. a practice. They had just beat Kentucky, number one in the country, and UMass is now the number one team. And I watched the practice with Red Auerbach in GW's practice gym. Uh, I've been, I, I, you know, I've spent time with really, really top coaches. I've had, you know, Dean Smith has recruited my players when I was a coach in the, in the 80s and 90s for high school, and Lon Kruger and Billy Donovan and whatever. I, and I know these guys personally. A lot of them are my age, Billy's almost exactly my age, I think. I mean, when I first met Billy Donovan, he was a grad assistant for Rick Pitino, and I had worked with Pitino's camp because they were recruiting one of my players. And Billy would set up, he would send me videotapes of Patino's ball handling drills so I could do it with my players. I mean, we were contemporary. <laughs> right. So I, I, I say all that to tell you this, watching our team practice in Raleigh, I think we might have an elite coach in this guy named, his name is Paul Clement. And he had been an assistant at Chelsea and some other place and, and, and had some real success. What he, his boss did, he was an assistant. And, and I'm not always right, but I'm typically right when I say, Oh, this guy can really coach. Uh, but that's always been for basketball. And some cases for football, and when, when I was watching the Tampa Bay Rays a little bit, when we hired a guy named Joe Madden, and every baseball guy that I knew that was an expert was telling me Joe Madden was the worst manager ever, and I would go to some games because you can get tickets really easily. We were terrible. I, I just disagreed. I, I just saw a different vibe in him, 
and I was sure that I was wrong because we kept losing. And obviously, Joe Madden is a pretty amazing baseball coach. Yeah. I think we might have a, a, a great coach. So if we can finish top 10, it's going to take a lot of things to happen. But when you've got a coach that, that really is special, the way he relates to players, uh, his leadership quality, which, of course, is you, know, you can be a great X and O guy but not a charismatic leader, or you can be the opposite and be a very charismatic leader, and the X and O's are just okay, I think he might be the full package. He might really have that talent. How long we can keep him is a separate issue, but that's a great problem to have because it means you've had some top 10 finishes with him, and now we'll go get paid you know, a bajillion dollars somewhere else. So I think we've got a much stronger team than we had. Like I said, we finished eighth uh, in the EPL after we hired him through half a season, and that was even with some pretty bad injuries where we lost every game. We still finished eighth. So uh, I think we're going to be a better team because because of him having a whole year now there and and if we if we sell we have we have a top player named Sigerson from Iceland Iceland's best player on their national team and he was I think I think he led the EPL in assists he's probably the best player in the league at set plays for points or assists he's brilliant but uh, he's trying to hold out Everton's talking about buying him that's what I've been reading about because obviously I don't get the dirt behind the scenes it seems like it's going to be a deal done. And let's say we sell them for, we're asking for $50 million. Um, Yeah, I'm sure we don't get what we asked for, but let's say it's 40-something, and then we turn that into two other players that are going to be starting-level players to a team that's already pretty strong. We only lost, I think, one of the guys from last year. Then, yeah, I think top 10 is possible. I know that's what we want. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Is In fact, we talk about trying to get top eight, trying to qualify for that, that secondary cup. The Champions Cup is for that top three or four. The next cup, I think, is the Europa Cup. If we can get in that, uh, that means we had a chance to develop our young players a little bit more in some of those games, make more money too, and 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 become just a, a, a stronger team overall. That so that's what I would hope for is top eight. But I more importantly, I just want to make sure we're top seventeen. Yeah, and then finally, you know, there, there are a lot of fans in America here that that like the league, that are getting into it, that they want to choose a team. Give us your fifteen second elevator pitch here. Why why Swansea City? All right, so I'll, give you, I'll say two quick things. One is uh, we have an amazing coach, and we have a special style of play. It changes a little bit year to year, but uh, we, we share the ball more so. We kind of play like the Warriors play. Uh, the ball is moving more. Last year we changed it up a little bit because we had two primary offensive players, but typically the ball is moving a lot. So we might have 100 more passes in a game than maybe other, another team would. So we, we, we play a more democratic style. I think the best thing is it's, it's, it's because it's small market. Uh, we, you're not just one of a million people. You're, you're, it's a, everyone knows everyone kind of thing. Uh, it's amazing. The Swansea fans on Twitter, they all get together at, and, and they really have a connection with their, because there's not a thousand of them in a, in a bar watching the game. There might be right. 20 or 30. And so that, that's kind of cool. You really develop friends as opposed to just bandwagon guys that are, that are fans with you. Uh, and if you, I mean, when Leicester City had that magical run and won the EPL, you know, fans of Leicester City, it doesn't matter if that team gets relegated. They'll never forget that year's <laughs> yeah. best year of their life. If we ever have that run, it'll be the best year of our lives. Yeah. And look, here's, here's, here's my branding tip, pro branding tip. When you do interviews on the NBA, you got to just say the Warriors are really playing Swansea ball and just let it, <laughs> let it out there until it catches on, man. And then there you go. It's funny too. People people think Golden State has the most talent. Of course, they they are loaded with talent. But as as a as a coach, and I, I I don't watch the game as a fan. The Warriors run. They play gorgeous basketball. The ball's flying around. 
they're racing everywhere. They don't run to spots. They race to spots. They play frenetically. And, yes, they're super talented as well. But they've also created that. Clay Thompson was a below-average player before Steve Kerr got there. Draymond Green was a 6-5 and five stiff that they couldn't right. trade. They were trying to trade him. He, he was nothing. Kerr comes in, changes everything. That's why I say it's a coach's league. Well, man, I'm so excited for this season. Just I'll be, I'll be cheering. You know, when I'm not rooting for Spurs, I'll be cheering for Swansea for yeah. you. We'll be following you on Twitter at Coach Thorpe, and I encourage everyone to read the go buy the book Basketball is Jazz: Stories and Lessons from a Basketball Lifer. We love hearing you on uh, out on the pods talking NBA, but but please uh, and, and hey, a plea to men and Blazers: have Coach on to talk about Swansea. I, I want to see you. I want to see you in the panic room behind them. Uh, uh, you know, singing that Gwen that. Stefani song, my friend. I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to a couple of games this year and maybe a home and away and. Uh, I'm going to reach out. I would love to be on that show. For anyone that, that, that it doesn't watch Men and Blazers, you don't have to know a European football league to enjoy it. They are comedians. They're, it's, it's brilliantly done. And, uh, yeah, you can't enjoy 30 minutes anymore. So, yeah, I really appreciate being on. Big fan of what you guys do. And, and maybe we'll do it again sometime. We are back in the sports world. We always treat coaches, athletes, media like crap when they want to discuss something that's not their sport. We feel like that is terrible. Life is just work and the things that distract you from work. So on this show, Just on Sports, we tell you what is distracting us this week. Maybe it will inspire you. Gareth, I'm going First, hit me. My daughter, Violet, she is eight months old. She's my second daughter. She is beautiful and wonderful. And she has been terrible <laughs> as a human being. <laughs> They'll do that. Life. She was colicky, which I can only describe as she would not be put down for the first five to six months. So if you were holding her and you put her down to like take a piss or get a drink of water, or try to change her diaper, or try to change her shirt, she would scream at you, and then that would Mm -hmm. become like a 45-minute ordeal. She would also not sleep on her back, not sleep on her stomach, not sleep anywhere. It was tough. So she's getting better, but this week, the last two weeks, my whole family had strep throat, which you know if you listened to the pod last week. And... um. I was trying to soothe her and calm her down, and I started singing Randy Newman to her. <laughs> and Gareth, what I, song? I started singing uh, "Burn On," which is the song from the beginning of Major League. Uh, it is the song about the Cuyahoga River. So <laughs> right now, my wife said to me, "She said, Brad, I I think you sound oddly like that song." And I said, "Okay." I'll let the the listeners be the judge. Tell me on Twitter at Just on Sports how I'm doing. Ready? Gareth, you ready? Yeah. There's a red moon rising on the Cuyahoga River. <laughs> Rolling in the Cleveland to the lake. There's an oil barge winding down the Cuyahoga River. Rolling into Cleveland to the lake. 
Cleveland, City of Light, City of Magic. Cleveland, City of Light, you're calling me. Cleveland, even now I can't remember. Cause the car, the whole river, goes smoking through my dreams. Burn on the big river. <laughs> I burn on. Burn on big river. Burn on. Now, now the Lord will make you dumble. The Lord can make you turn. The Lord will make you overflow. The Lord won't make you burn. I burn on big river, burn on, bum, 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 bum. Gareth, how'd I do? Uh, now do rednecks. I don't know that song. I'm the only. It's other, problematic. The, the <laughs> only other song I know is "I Love LA <laughs> from I the know. greatest baseball movie ever made, which is. The last 20 minutes of Naked Gun. Sorry, Bull Durham, but that shit is way better than Bull Durham. <laughs> the hot so, take. Well, you also just sang it from Major League, which is one of the best baseball movies ever made. Uh, I Tony actually think Russa, did- Gareth, by the way, I wrote a story where we got Tony La Russa to say, what is your favorite, uh, while he was Cardinals manager, what is your favorite baseball movie? And he was like Major League over Bull Durham. He's like, Major League was just more real. <laughs> Which well, it's awesome. like how people say that Veep is more real than House of Cards. Uh, to to the topic at hand, I actually think you do a very good Randy Newman impression. Uh, I would not suggest singing Rednecks. Uh, <laughs> I I also am curious if we are now the first. I mean, there's a lot of podcasts out there, but I am wondering if we have are the first podcast to do a full Randy Newman. So, acapella song because that might be a first uh i'll stick with music this is this is going to be a little less memorable but I, I just a real recommendation um the guitarist link ray uh w-r-a-y i don't you might not know him by name but you know his song rumble it is a like 50s early 60s rock and roll classic uh, instrumental, just like that drum, 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 drum. Uh, it's in Quentin Tarantino. It's in Pulp Fiction in the diner scene. Um, there's a great video. The the documentary It Might Get Loud has Jimmy Page putting his old 45 of Rumble on and just like giggling like a kid listening to it, talking about the power chords and things like that. Well, his 1971 self-titled album, Link Ray, is not instrumental. It has lyrics. It is wonderful. Uh, I listened to it a few times this week. It's got a great cover with him just looking ahead in profile. Uh, I highly recommend it. Standout songs. I love Fire and Brimstone. That song uh, has and Fallen Rain, actually. Those are the two that have been in my head all week. So Link Ray's self-titled album from 1971. Give that one a listen. I love it. Uh, I want to quickly close by saying this. I was in my uh, my car, which is my wife's old car. We got a new car. Um, and 
uh, found her CDs, and Gareth, they are butt. They are <laughs> just butt. My wife's musical taste in the in the 90s and early 2000s can be described as Gareth's masturbatory fantasies of jam bands, which is like widespread panic, tons of fish, tons of dead, and then two Ani DeFranco CDs, which I threw in her face <laughs> instantly. Like, you have two Ani DeFranco CDs? And now look, <laughs> look, I may or may not have tried to convince my wife to leverage one of our very few grandparent babysitting sessions by going with me to a Tori Amos concert in Chicago recently. <laughs> but I'm DeFranco. I'm DeFranco. No way. I'm all in on Tori Amos, but no on DeFranco. Right, Gareth? Uh, I don't know, man. When I showed up to college back in 1997, my joke was... If Fish and Ani DeFranco covered the Rent soundtrack, every single person on our campus would have owned it. Um, I have no problem with Ani DeFranco. I don't listen to it. Napoleon is a fucking awesome song. She wrote some classics. She was a woman running her own label. I, I, I I'm not calling this butt, and but you're you like in sync, man. Different strokes for different folks. Can we settle a beef right now? Can we settle a beef yeah. right now? You and I yeah. were in a record store called Looney T Birds in Oxford, uh-huh. Ohio. It's a true story, probably. A Luscious Jackson came on the speakers, and they were like, "You said, oh hey, you should check out the co-stars. They're like a spinoff mm. band." And I bought their CD, and that CD sucked. <laughs> like, I'm just, they've got a couple good jams on there. Name one. My wife. Loved, Name one. Oh, that was 20 years ago. Uh, let me consult the Spotify. No, My no, wife. No. Just name one. If you can name I one. I can name a good co-star song. This, if you can name one co-star's good song, I will let this $12.95 pass forever. Go. I, I Not at the top. Here we go. There's the album. The oh, co-stars. come on. You're Googling it. You're Googling I don't, it. I, don't, I haven't listened to that shit in 20 years. <sighs> yeah, yeah me, I got nothing. Hey, Gareth. Me neither. What? That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Gareth, any shout outs this week? Uh, nah, man. No shout. Everyone have a good week. Be nice to each other. I'm going to shout out Coach Thorpe. I'm going to shout out all the NBA people who cover the league who are taking August off. And I want to say shout out to Joe Reed, Adam Millard, Colleen, watching the show. Motherfucking Watson. Yeah, motherfucking. And I want to say, Gareth, I'm going to do it. Ready? I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to give a shout out to my boy Uzi. Def Jeff, Mm -hmm. the legend. Yep. Little Swanee, Meech. Meech, love that guy. Ron Mack. And my other cousin, Cousin Ron. Ron. Because booty rappers. In the immortal words of Shaquille O'Neal. Stay booty. Stay booty.